0: So we're going to kind of start on a year-long journey today. We're going to open to a book of the Bible that I have been reluctant to teach for 10 years because it is a difficult book. And it's a book that starts with the letter R. Can anybody guess what that is? No, not Revelation. I would never preach out of that book, okay? Just to be clear, we're talking about the book of Romans, okay? Okay, yeah, Revelation, uh uh-uh. No way, Jose, Uh, maybe in year 20. Romans, on the other hand, I have just developed enough courage uh, to jump into. So this is gonna take us to study about a year, okay? About a year. Um, Why would you take a year to study a book of the Bible? Some Christian leaders have said that Romans is the most important theological book ever written, John Calvin said that Romans was his entrance to all of the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Martin Luther said it was the most important piece of the New Testament. Those are pretty common names. John Calvin, uh, founder of the Presbyterian Church. Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church. I talked to Pastor Sue this week. We were planning for our Thanksgiving Uh, ecumenical service which is coming up the sunday night before thanksgiving i met with she and another pastor in our community and she was telling me that uh, while we have the assemblies of god 200 churches in all of wisconsin and northern michigan she has pastor sue 200 lutheran churches in her uh, what do they call it not diocese but synod which is one-fifth of the synods in the state So there's a lot of Lutheran churches in the Midwest. Not so much where I'm from in the Southeast. There's a lot of churches like ours. But in the Midwest, it's replete with Lutheran churches. Well, Martin Luther was the founder of the Lutheran denomination, the Protestant Reformation. He said, it's impossible to read, study, ponder, or meditate on the book of Romans too much. It's impossible. In fact, it was the study of this book that launched many a spiritual awakenings over the course of history, including some that have taken place in the United States and Europe, and especially the Protestant Reformation, okay? So it's a big deal. Martin Luther called the book's central theme justification by faith alone, okay? Uh, He said it's the doctrine on which the church rises uh, or falls, And yet for 10 years, we've not preached it at the Mill Church because I was afraid. As with Galatians, as with Revelations, as with Job, uh, it's difficult. I didn't want to mess it up. I'm still hoping I don't mess it up. So may the fall of 2019 be deemed the year that we crawl out of our Star Wars bedsheets theologically and into something deep. Really deep in the scriptures. Okay, this is a year that we get to work. Um, it is in Romans that Paul works through the most pressing uh, questions that the human race has ever asked. Um, he does this with the most brilliant of logic. So deep is the Apostle Paul's logic. Logic, who is, by the way, regarded nearly unanimously is the greatest theologian to have ever lived, the Apostle Paul, um, the deepest thinker of the Christian faith. Um, he, uh, his book, this book, the book of Romans, was studied at Harvard Law School for the first 100 years of its existence. Students, law students, were required to work their way through Romans to learn how to formulate an argument in a court of law. That's how immaculate Paul's logic is. Paul starts with things we've all observed in life and he then explains why the gospel, the good news of Christ, is the most plausible explanation for them. He then proceeds to answer questions that formulate in the reader's mind before we even ask them. And his central subject, again is the gospel. And he tells us his subject in the first chapter. This is what he says in verses 15 and 16 of chapter one. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Rome is our Stratford, our Edgar, our Marshfield. Uh, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Notice Paul says that the gospel is the power of God. Not that it contains the power of God, not that it's reminiscent of the power of God, not that it speaks to or leads to the power of God, but that it is the power of God. That is why Nicole Bark sat right here and surrendered a life, a typical, teen, I think she was 19 years of age, a typical late teen life to the glory of God, to the power of the gospel. It was the good news that transformed her. It was the news of God's grace. And so consider this fact, the gospel is the one thing in the New Testament other than Jesus Christ himself that is directly referred to as the power of God. Jesus Christ was referred to as the power of God. The gospel was referred to as the power of God. And that's it, so this helps to explain why Paul was so devoted to it, why Paul said, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's available to everyone who believes." Um, did you know that when dynamite was invented in the eighteenth century that its name was derived from the same Greek word that's used here in the verses I just read to you, the Greek word for power, it's duunamas uh, Paul didn't know about dynamite, right? It came many years after his day, but it's a good image for us to think about the gospel. It's God's explosive power to create the world to redeem the world, to bring somebody back from the dead, not only physically, as he did with Lazarus and Jesus, but figuratively or spiritually, our souls. So the gospel isn't just some rote definition that you can read in some theological book. It isn't some strategy. It's the story of God Intervening to redeem human souls in human history on this side of heaven. To touch the gospel, to hear the good news, is to touch the very power of God. The gospel is not simply good advice. The gospel is good news. Amen? In the South, in in generations past, they used dynamite to to go fishing with (laughs) And it didn't give you the the dynamite stick. It didn't give you instructions on how to fish. That wasn't its purpose. You didn't throw it beneath the surface and and with with a camera attached to it, it tell you where the fish were. That wasn't its purpose. Um, It didn't locate fish. Um, It simply, it didn't even tell you where to cast. It simply blew fish to bits right? It, it it created an impact enough and an explosive quality enough under the water that fish would just float to the surface. And you gather them and put them in your boat. And in a similar way, I want to tell you that the gospel doesn't give you instructions on how to change. The gospel doesn't um, tell you why to change. Oh I suppose it does, but the, the gospel is more accurately the power to change. It's the dynamite stick, right? And so I just wanna in- encourage you that, that in the same way, it's the power that brings the fish to the surface. In a similar way, the gospel is itself the power to change one's life. And there may be somebody here who in this introduction is listening. And you would say, you know what? I've tried to change on my own too long. I've tried to change too long. You want desperately to be good. You want desperately to be free from some struggle. Maybe you've discovered that nothing has shown you how bad you are more than trying to be good. It's not that you don't know what to do. You know exactly what to do. It's that you feel powerless to change. It's the motivation you lack. It's the ability you lack. And what I hope we encounter in our year-long study of the book of Romans is is that God has given us the power to do not only what we know we should do, but what we want to do. Because I think people want to change. I think they really do. I think they lack the power, or more accurately than that even, they don't know they have it. Pastor, I already know the gospel. Thank you very much. I already love the book of Romans. This year may be boring for me when I really think about it. Um, Consider this. Paul wrote this letter to Christians, not to atheists or agnostics, He didn't write it to pagans. He didn't write it to people who were marginalized. He wrote it to the church. Verse 7 of chapter 1 says he wrote it to the saints. So this is as much a book for the already believing as it is anything else we've read or as is anything else we've read or done at the Mill Church. So furthermore, the apostle Peter said in his letter that the Angels themselves long to peer into or look into the gospel. Think about how hard it is for for a minute to impress an angel. The angels were there for at least part of the seven days of creation. That's what we read in the Bible. The angels saw Lazarus being raised from the dead. The angels saw Jesus Christ walk out of his own tomb unassisted. The angel saw Balaam's donkey talk in Hebrew. A donkey. Can you imagine walking up on a 10-point buck and it saying, why'd you do that? I mean, angels see these things, okay? And yet, and yet we read, according to Peter, that they long for the gospel, the thing that gets the angels going is the story of a crucified savior. That's what they microwave popcorn for. That's what they're eager to to, to hear about. And so they replay the story of Christ above and beyond any, any of the other stories in the scripture. They want to see the act in which God, the love of God, the ultimate love of God, was on display on the cross through the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the angels long for. And so, I mean, think about it. They're like the oldest of teenagers, right? You have a teenager who's just unimpressed with anything. It's like nothing is, is excitable to them. They've seen it all, they've done it all. They're just, nothing's cool. Nothing's cool. You couldn't possibly entertain them. That's the angels. And yet they're looking into the gospel with vigor. It excites them, it makes their blood boil. So I don't think you're going to be bored. If you're a Christian, we get the best water, not by widening the circumference of a well, but rather by what? Going deeper into the earth. It's not collecting more facts about the Bible that exponentially grows. That's like the chief human error, the myth that we believe. When we know more of the Bible, we're going we're gonna to be more spiritual. Let me tell you what will make you more spiritual. It's a deeper awareness of the things that you already know. That's what makes an individual grow in his or her faith. That's what will change your life. So we're going to go deeper in the well this year. In 2005, uh, there was a movie released called Batman Begins. How many of you love Batman? Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a confession to you this morning, okay? I went to see The Joker because I'm a huge Batman fan. I can't believe I'm telling you this because I honestly racked my mind thinking about what parishioner I could ask to go see that movie with me without me being labeled a hypocrite. And I came up with Art Narvaez, our band member up here. So Art and I went to see the Joker because I'm like a huge Batman fan. I took my, I gave my dad as a Christmas gift the Batman movie that came out in the 90s with Jack Nicholas as the Joker because I wanted a gift for me. So I gave my, my dad that gift because I knew I could watch it. That's silly and selfish, but that's the truth. And so any, any Batman fans, let me see you in the house one more time. Okay, let me tell you this. Young Bruce Wayne, in the 2005 film, he goes underneath his family estate and finds all these systems of caves that hold the secrets to him becoming the Batman. The point is that the full splendor of the Wayne family was found not above the surface— of the earth, but below. And that is the case with the book of Romans. Martin Luther said, to progress in the Christian life is to begin again. It's not to to discover new facts, it's to rediscover, to become intimately familiar with what we already know. Paul says in verse 17, we experience the power of the gospel not from fact to fact, but from faith to faith. Let me ask you this. How did you experience the power of Christ initially? By faith. You believed for the first time that Jesus walked out of the grave by himself, right? That he died for you. Okay, I hope that's your answer. You discovered you couldn't save yourself. You discovered you needed some outside force to redeem you. That's what you discovered, right? Um, So you had to trust in God. And my point is this. The same faith that connected you to Christ in, in, in the beginning is the faith that will continually allow you to experience the power of God throughout your faith journey. It is your renewed faith in Christ that will keep you connected to God's power. Whatever is, is broken in your life, the first step of remedy to what is broken, okay, is, is that you believe the gospel. Again, you see that your sin debt was paid by Jesus. You could never be any more acceptable, some of you discovered, to God than you were right in your brokenness. You were able to come to Christ as you are. He accepted you as you are. In other words, it's His power, His power alone, that saves us. And when you believe that, you experience the power of the gospel. And when you continue to believe that, you experience renewals of the power of God. In other words, the, the good news, the gospel, isn't the diving board, it's the pool itself. The good news, the story of Christ on a cross is to be experienced perpetually. It is to be swam in. It is to be enjoyed. It, it is the initial burst of power, yes, but it powers us all the way through. And so the way we continue in Christ is the way we began in Christ. Busyness, therefore, in Jesus, is not godliness. The godliest people are not the busiest people. God isn't some taskmaster in heaven saying, do it better, work harder, serve more. It's not good enough. You need to try harder. Religion will make you, yes or no, spin your wheels trying to keep up. And if you're not careful in trying to do things for Jesus, you lose, I've seen this so many times, I've experienced it in my own life, you lose the power of the gospel, the simplicity of the story of God who became man to redeem lost sinners. So what does Paul mean when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word in Greek, again, it literally means good news. Um, the word wasn't always exclusively used for religious purposes. Today we hear the word gospel, we think of nothing else than church related things or matters or songs. Things, matter. songs about Jesus. When we hear the word gospel, actually in Paul's day, the word was not used at all in religious contexts. It was used in secular contexts to talk about warfare. It was the most commonly used uh, way um, that, that a Greek general would express to his people winning a battle. He'd come out, he'd, he'd gather all the commoners, Underneath him, and he would say, Hear ye, hear ye, I have some gospel for you. I have some good news for you. I, General Fantastic, or whatever his name was, have defeated General Lackluster. And we have won. We are victorious. And everybody would cheer. It wasn't some kind of invitation to join the army. It was a declaration that the battle had already been won. So when the Apostle Paul borrows this word from secularism, he's saying, I've got some gospel for you all today. I've got some good news for you all today. Let me tell you about a battle that Jesus Christ has already won. He declared it in among his dying breaths. He said, it is what? Finished, meaning I've already done the work. That's where the power lies. Your salvation has already been bought. So now you can live in freedom and in peace, and in security. We sing a song every once in a while here that's ages old, it's called Blessed Assurance. Man, how beautiful is it to walk through life with blessed assurance that you're gonna be in heaven? To not doubt it, because the power of God has already been put on display on the cross. Paul says in verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a key question that we must ask ourselves in the the opening and throughout our study of the book of Romans. Because you'll see this phrase again and again and again and again. What is the righteousness of God? What does that phrase even mean? What exactly is it? Because for a long time, people thought it was God's judgment for the sinner. People thought it was God's holiness in some standard that we could not as human beings possibly live up to. That is the righteousness of God or so we thought, I want to assure you this morning that the righteousness of God is not some standard that we live up to, nor is it God's punishment for evildoers. This is what the righteousness of God is. The righteousness of God, and Martin Luther was was the first one, as I understand it, to fully bring this to our attention, is a gift that God gives us when we are in fact unrighteous. That is the righteousness of God. This revelation is what led to countless revivals throughout history. Theologians call it gift righteousness, meaning all of a sudden a group of people discovered that truly God gave them grace even in the middle of their sin. And out of gratitude, a movement was birthed. A spiritual awakening was birthed. That has happened over and over again. Secondly, the righteousness of God is something we are given from outside ourselves. Imagine having no clue that you were about to take a physics exam, forgetting about it, and walking into your college classroom and sitting there with a blank stare on your face as you thumb through the various pages to know that you didn't, understand any of it you didn't know the answers to any of it and imagine just hopelessly throwing away your semester in that course and walking up to the teacher to hand in a blank test when one of your college buddies then comes up to you the smartest buddy in the class the one who would never forget about the date of an exam the one who studied harder, worked harder than anybody else, the one who gave every attention to detail, coming up and saying, you know what, Zach, I, I, I saw that you were struggling. I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to erase my name, and I'm going to put your name on my test, and I'm going to erase your name, and I'm going to put my name on your test. Now, at some point, the illustration breaks down because we know that's cheating, okay? And we would not do that But what I want to show you is that that's what Jesus Christ did for us. He gave us everything that we did not deserve. And He took on Himself, on the cross, everything that He did not deserve. Does this make sense? And so the gift of righteousness, the righteousness of God, is something we're given from outside of ourselves. Um, It's so outside of ourselves that theologians call it alien righteousness. It's like from another planet. It's just otherworldly. It just doesn't make sense. Third characteristic we'll notice about the righteousness of God is that it coexists with the sin In the life of the believer. At the same time, people who have faith in Jesus have righteousness and sin in their lives simultaneously. When you see that, in spite of your sin, in your sin, God the Father, the Father you've always longed for and wanted, still loves you, everything changes. You live, it's what started the awakenings. You want to desperately serve God because you respond to his kindness. So when your life becomes not this like duty-bound drudgery, but when it becomes a grateful response to God's gift, even in your sin, everything changes. Just imagine a prisoner being given a congressional medal of honor and being paraded around by by some dignitary as a hero in spite of the shameful deeds that they'd done. That's a visual picture of what Christ has done for us. Fourth and last, God's righteousness, Martin Luther pointed out, is for everyone. And the apostle Paul pointed out, Salvation, if you'll recall, was first available to what group of people? The Jews. Those who believed in the God of the Father Abraham and Isaac, his son, and Jacob, Isaac's son. That was who salvation was available for. And the Jews had a hard time understanding how in Paul's day, at the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, all of a sudden, salvation came to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And because the Gentiles were bad. I mean, they are bad. I mean, how can salvation be made available to Gentiles? I mean, they have perverse sexual practices and they have no concept of family and, and, and they take up two parking spaces at Menards. And they fish with dynamite. And Paul says, Them too. They now have access to the grace of God. And so if you're here this morning and you would say, I am really messed up. I'm really messed up. I just want to remind you that in a few days God created the world out of nothing. I want to remind you that God raised Lazarus from the dead while his flesh was rotting I want to remind you that God can handle your mess. It's no wonder Paul said, I'm eager. I'm eager to tell people about the gospel. When you're truly aware of what God's done, you are eager. Spurgeon said, if you understand what Jesus has done for you, you cannot keep the good news to yourself. You'll whisper it in your kid's ear. You'll tell it to your spouse. You'll tell it to your neighbor. You say, pastor, I'm not all that eager. Maybe, maybe the reason you're not eager to share the gospel is because you have not experienced the true power of God. The gospel, maybe for you it's a theory, maybe for you it's a concept, maybe for you it's a possibility, and I think that's a great starting place, frankly, to admit that. So I'm trusting that during this study, over the next year, you'll experience, not think about, not contemplate on, you'll experience the gospel that is the power of God. And you'll be unable to keep your mouth shut. And by the way, for Paul, the writer of Romans, being eager came with a cost. Today, people go to Rome for vacation. Today, it's a destination point people are eager to get to. Not in Paul's day, for Paul going to Rome, we learn this in the book of Acts, meant beatings, stonings, imprisonment, shipwrecks, and snake bites. But yet to Paul, the gospel was worth it. Is the good news worth it for you? Is it worth taking risks? Is it worth being uncomfortable? Is it worth building a building so that we'll have a place to share the gospel to kids as they grow into adolescence and young adults? We at the Mill Church, we need to stay focused on the gospel, the good news, a crucified, resurrected Savior for you because that's where the power lies. Sure, we want to be relevant. Sure, we just did a study on the five emotions, blah, 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 blah. But learning the five steps to overcome depression isn't nearly as powerful as being fully aware of the 5,000 steps Jesus took to pursue you. That's transformative. Nothing. Not politics. Not solving world hunger, nothing is as important an agenda as sharing the gospel. The good news that Jesus loved you so much that he paid the debt that you owed, he gave you the righteousness that he possessed. So here's my question and challenge to you before you go. Who is your one that's what I'm going to call it throughout the series. Who's the one person that you might identify in your life that you can, over the next year, continue to build a relationship with and share the gospel with? Who is that one person? Can you imagine what would happen if each of us won one person? and only one person to the faith over the course of this study? Can you imagine what would happen at the Mill Church? Maybe you'd invite them to church. Maybe you'd invite them to your life group. Maybe you'd invite them to Alpha. Maybe you'd Google how to share the gospel with them. You can do that. Maybe you'd simply ask them how you might pray for them. Maybe that would be the introduction. Maybe you'd do an act of service for them and rake their leaves and continue to be strategic about how to win their friendship and their trust. Maybe you invite them over to your house for dinner. How eager are you to share the gospel? Let's pray. Father, I pray over the course of this study of the book of Romans that we would end any season in which our faith is tangential, is peripheral, is secondary or third or fifth in our list of priorities. I pray, God, that we would seek out the Tom and Nicole's I pray, God, that we would be most intentional, eager, out of hearts that are full of gratitude to share the gospel. No matter what it would cost us. In Jesus' name, amen.